So about, about two or three weeks ago now, Alex reminded us that this year and clear into 2023, the focus of the Community Bible Church as a, as a family is going to be twofold. First, community, to draw us together, to we want our fellowship, our people to be bound together and united as they are in Scripture. We want to truly be a family, brothers and sisters in Christ who are in lockstep with Scripture and in our dedication for our love to the Lord and to one another. And the second focus of energy for us collectively as a body is that of evangelism. We want to be used by the Holy Spirit to bring those who don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior to come to him in a real and lasting commitment. That's our two focuses. And we kind of primed the pump on this thing back in March. Uh, I filled in for Alex on a Sunday morning and did a message on evangelism. And that, that message focused mainly on our approach to evangelism, on how do we at Community Bible Church of Los Lunas view the biblical call to evangelize our neighbor and our community. But also a lot more practical, hands-on things. We, we dealt with utilizing Bible tracts and kind of canned presentations to some conversational starting techniques more, more practical, hands-on stuff. And for that message, I, I even went to our church website uh, to kind of compare notes and make sure I was going to be on the same page with that message. And there's a page on our website, if you haven't been to it, that says Our Approach. And in that, it lines out the biblical truths that we are founded on and what we see as as pillars to what we believe. And one of those pillars <clears throat> is the mission of the church. And it's very plain. The mission of the church is an extension of Jesus' mission before her. We believe the mission of the church consists in four parts. First, to proclaim the gospel. Second, to show mercy or show justice and mercy to our community. Third, to honor God in our work. And fourth, to strive for Christlikeness in our day-to-day -day living. And I don't think it's coincidental that the first part of this list is to do what we've entitled the Great Commission. And I might even suggest, as I did back then, that uh, failing to do this, failing to put this into practice, could actually be a sin of omission. Uh, when you look at James 4.17, so for the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. Uh, and I don't think it's a stretch to, to neglect those things in Scripture that we know we should do. And I know that evangelism is uh, obviously our, our favorite subject, uh, and we're all very engaged in it. But uh, I tried to focus in on why it's so difficult. 
why is it so darn hard to speak to others about Jesus Christ, to approach the subject when we're talking to others? <clears throat> and I've heard a lot of excuses for not fulfilling our job in that area, but the fact is that they're not reasons, they're excuses. <clears throat> and there is a big difference. Paul tells young Timothy, he says, do the work of an evangelist. And it wasn't his spiritual gift. In fact, Paul may have given him this, this command, this, this order, this reminder, because he was being neglectful in that area. But whatever the reason, we're all expected to do the work of evangelists. And in this day and age in America, we have a very high hurdle to overcome. It's called America. And we've seen a vast proliferation of a moral revolution in our country over the past 30 or 40 years. An indoctrination that really is taking place in our world to push thoughts and secular ideas, everything but something spiritual, everything but something that is scriptural. And the embracing of clearly unbiblical activity in the name of acceptance or progressiveness is rampant even in the visible church today. And I was actually shocked when I started looking into how the church has been changed over the past years, uh, not for the better at all. In fact, a couple of weekends ago, the United Church of Christ in Naples, Florida, hosted a youth pride conference sponsored by the local LGBTQRSTUV thing. <clears throat> and the conference featured a drag show with participants as young as 12 years old. And you have to ask yourself, how does that happen? How does the church get so far away from what God designed it to be? We are supposed to have compassion for those that are struggling, without a doubt. But we have got to point them towards the truth. There's got to be a place they can come to where they know they're getting the truth. And the church is hardly it anymore in a vast area. So in confusing days, people need the truth of God's word. The church is supposed to be a light on a hill. But instead, it's become almost impossible to distinguish the church from the world. The world is broken. It's broken because of sin. And it, <clears throat> and it takes God's word, it takes scripture to heal that brokenness. So Alex and the elders are right to focus on what we're focusing on now for the foreseeable future community and evangelism. The church needs to be a place where people can come and hear the truth and be with other people that believe the truth. The objective of the church is to lead people to Jesus Christ, whether they're struggling or not, and I think everybody's pretty much struggling. And what I want to start out with are some of the specific reasons that this task is so difficult. St statistics don't, uh, don't stand in our corner when it comes to 
evangelism. And I'm going to try to refrain from making the statistical portion of this message mind-numbing because there's a lot of numbers out there. But I think we need to be able to quantify and qualify the opposition of the church in today's world. The Barna Cultural Research Institute, the people who do the polls for, for uh, churches and, and spiritual things and beliefs, released the findings of a 30-year study. So this study started in 1991. And the changed beliefs in America today. And George Barna, the guy who kind of runs this whole thing, describes it as the most rapid and radical cultural upheaval our nation has ever experienced. And then he goes on to state that those upheavals are causing monumental changes within our nation's historically stable religious alignments. In its first 200 years, America could count, could count on the consistency of its people's faith commitments, and with that, common views about morality, purpose, family, lifestyle, citizenship, and values. And he concludes by saying, as my research clearly shows, the United States has become one of the largest and most important mission fields in the world. Now, growing up in the 50s, there's not a lot of you here that grew up, well, there's, oh, there's a few old people. But it admittedly was a lot easier than it is today. I mean, seriously, some of the influences on our culture were things like Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet. It was a pretty easy time to grow up and not get crossways with scriptural values. And these TV shows depicted families that, that listened to the Father and that, that held beliefs and that actually prayed before they ate. <clears throat> But a shared consensus of beliefs and values no longer exists in America, and we, we see that every day. We've moved into a very different culture where people are saying, I don't want the Bible, I don't want God, and I don't want the church. But even though our culture doesn't want God or the church or the Bible, it's important for followers of Jesus to remain faithful to our mission. As fewer and fewer people share our theological and worldview commitments, Christians will need a lot more courage <clears throat> that was not required from generations in the past. And compounding our problem is the fact that the visible church in America today does not reflect the standards of a biblically-based church. And the reason is the shocking number of Christian pastors in America today who don't have a biblical worldview. Again, according to pollster George Barna, most, very, very much more than 50% of the pastors in America do not hold a biblical view of beliefs. <clears throat> so how does that hurt us regarding this thing called evangelism? that we're supposed to be engaged in. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, what if a young couple, a couple of, of uh, preteen kids with them, 
comes to one of the churches in the valley here that does not have a biblical worldview. And they hear something like this. And this, I drew this from a sermon that was given two weeks ago in San Diego, a University Christian Church in San Diego. And the quote was from the pulpit, God almost never deals in absolutes. Our God is not a God of absolutes. Our God, I think, is a God who appreciates authentic questions, really striving to ask difficult questions and be able to live with some ambiguity in the answers. What if that's what you heard when you first went to church seeking the truth? Because this guy is basically saying that there are no moral absolutes. There are no objective, there is no objective morality. Everything is subjective to our will. And you're hearing that from the pulpit. And if that couple, couple isn't grounded in scripture, their perception of God just went totally awry. And they're going to build their theology on a foundation of sand. <clears throat> so that same poor couple comes to CBC and they hear the, the scriptures clearly said that God himself testified, I am the Lord, I do not change. And last week they heard something completely different. You see, God we need to all understand, and, and people who are seeking the truth need to understand that God didn't ever have to think up a moral standard to apply to his people. He didn't have to think up what was right or wrong. His moral standard flows from his perfectly pure and holy nature. It is. It's not a bunch of laws and stuff that people need to, to try to figure out. It is who God is. Since his nature is unchanging, his standards are absolute. And they don't change with the culture or with the tide or with the wind. The Bible's moral absolutes are unchanging. They don't need some new progressive interpretation. The truth is that two-thirds of the pastors in America today would be considered progressive or emergent pastors. And they clearly have no biblical worldview. Two-thirds. What's even scarier than that is the fact that only 12%, according to a Barna, this Barna study of 30 years, only 12% of children and youth pastors hold a biblical worldview. 12%. Your chance of getting a young pastor that holds a biblical worldview are pretty small. And it's the children who are the most vulnerable and the ones that need to be reached because they're the next generation of believers. <clears throat> Studies show that a person develops their worldview between the ages of 18 months and 13 years. So it's predominantly children's parents and youth pastors that are going to develop a child's worldview. They're going to have the greatest impact on a child for the next generation. So what happens to this couple that's 
looking for the truth, is that they they hear something different every place they go, and nobody is relying on Scripture as the base, and they become confused <clears throat> and probably bag their whole pursuit of truth. And it's a pretty scary thought. Study released in March of this year says that 67% of the parents of preteens here in America identify as Christian. 67%, that's big. Much more than I thought. But the study also reveals that only 2% of preteen parents hold a biblical worldview. They may say they're Christian, 67% do, but 2% hold a biblical worldview. Most of the parents are subscribing to some hodgepodge collection of ideas and philosophies that don't resemble anything that the Bible teaches. A biblical worldview would be described as having a high view of the Bible as a relevant and authoritative guide for life. And those 67% of the parents, preteens, say they're Christians, 2% hold that worldview. Actually, the most powerful worldview lesson parents provide is through their own behavior. And the general behavior of parents in our society today does not reflect biblical principles or an intentionally lived Christian life. And a parent's primary responsibility is to prepare a child for the life God intends that child to have. And a crucial element to that nurturing is helping a child develop a biblical worldview. It's a a filter that can cause a person to make their choices reflected on what God would want, on his teachings and his principles. So it would seem that most parents of preteens are unaware of the contradiction between calling themselves Christian but living in ways that deny the teachings of Jesus Christ and the principles of the Bible. And those are people we need to reach. According to God's plan for the family, it's the parents' responsibility to shape the faith of their children and as they approach adulthood. But with the troublesome percentages that we've just seen, it's obvious that parents are failing to do that miserably because they can't pass on what they don't have. Millions of parents are clearly confused about who they are, why they're here, what they believe. And in their effort to shape their children, they can only give them what they have. And they have nothing resembling solid Christianity. Okay, one more statistic before you go blank on me here. Uh, Because there is a practical application to, to these statistics. According to Barna's research, Hispanics represent the fastest-growing demographic in America. But over the past 30 years, there has been an incredible decrease in spiritual interest in that demographic. In fact, they are fleeing from the Catholic faith, which is generally uh, prescribed in in, uh, the Hispanic culture at a, a rate that they've never seen before. Uh, 
In fact, in 1991, uh, the number of Hispanics that that uh, were solidly in the Catholic Church was 59%, and 31% now identify as those who are don'ts. They don't. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with the Bible. They don't want anything to do with spirituality. So where does all of this lead us? What, what does all this have to do with evangelism? Well, if I were to poll just us here this morning, I'm pretty sure that all of us, I think, yeah, I don't think there's anybody here, that wouldn't say that they don't want to be used by God to bring about somebody, somebody's salvation. That we want to have a positive influence on people's spiritual lives. And I think we do. So I just want to focus a little bit of time here on how to live that out in the real world. We have a responsibility. Specifically, how can we take biblical truths and communicate them in a way that is both practical and compelling? As Christians, we like to talk about witnessing, but we struggle to actually do it. And sometimes out of laziness, sometimes out of a lack of knowledge, and sometimes out of fear. We're going to look at uh, 1 Peter 3. 13 through 16. And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation or do not be in dread. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And I really want to focus on verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter tells us, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Big deal. Alex's message two weeks ago focused our attention on this concept. And if you remember, he talked about Jesus doesn't want to be a part of our lives. He wants it all. And it really impacted me the way he described that. He doesn't want a part of our lives. He's not in a closet to be pulled out on Sunday morning. He wants everything. Why is it important as a framework for sharing our hope? In the Old Testament, they set apart certain utensils that they used only for God's work. They set aside pieces of furniture, uh, specific days and times like the Sabbath, God commands us to set apart a day a week for worship and rest. 
Some of us have fine china that is set apart for special events. You don't use it all the time. It's set apart for special purpose. Likewise, we need to set apart Christ in our hearts as Lord. Jesus is different. He's special. He gets final say in everything that we do, everything that we say. The first step in sharing our faith is to demonstrate the authenticity of our faith in our own lives. Are you living for yourself or are you living for Jesus? In fact, I remember Alex saying, during this, this message I was referring to, are you trying to be the best version of you that you can possibly be, or are you trying to be the best ver- version of Jesus that you can possibly be? Have you set yourself aside? To make Jesus Lord of our lives is to live totally for him and not for ourselves. As we walk in obedience to Christ, He is able to work in us and to move in us and to use us. So the question is, is Jesus truly Lord of your life right now? Have you decided to live under his leadership in every area of your life? Emily Post was kind of the etiquette expert of my parents' generation. And she was once asked, what is the correct procedure when one is invited to the White House but has a previous engagement. And she answered, an invitation to dine at the White House is a command, and it automatically cancels every other engagement. And I thought, there's something kind of apropos about that, something similar about that, regarding our commitment to being who God designed us to be. It's not a request. It's a command. One of the reasons we don't engage in evangelism is because we know we're not 100% committed to Jesus Christ. Spiritual seekers want to know that Christianity is not just something we, we do as a theological exercise. It's a daily relationship that radically transforms our lives from the inside out. Are we fully convinced that people without Christ are lost. Billy Graham once said, it could be that one of the great hindrances to evangelism today is the poverty of our own experience. Are we there? The first thing we're called to do is to demonstrate an authentic Christian life by setting apart Christ as Lord in our lives. Evangelism is primarily what we are. It's not what we do. And if we can understand that concept, that, in in fact, I've, I've heard it said that evangelism is what spills over when we bump into somebody. And can that describe us? It should. When we're living under the leadership of Jesus Christ, we have something that appeals to others when it spills onto them. The second part of 1 Peter 15, after setting apart Jesus Christ 
as Lord in our hearts is to always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be able to defend what we believe. We see in this middle part of verse 15, we're called not only to visualize Christianity to others by living it out, but to verbalize our faith by expressing it in a way that others can understand it, being prepared. Ideally, here's how it's supposed to work. As we demonstrate our faith, as we live it out day to day, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, our lives are going to be characterized by hope. And hope is something that everybody needs. We have never been so hopeless as we are today. Non-Christians should be able to see something very different in us and be curious about it. Some of them might even ask about our faith, and they should. When they do, we need to be ready. The word always means that we are to be ready always, all the time. To be on a constant state of alert to spill Jesus Christ on somebody else. We should live with an attitude of anticipation. We should wake up in the morning and, and say, oh, wow, I wonder who I'm going to be able to share this with. We're challenged to give an answer. It's the Greek, Greek word apologia, which doesn't mean we have to apologize for what we believe. But instead it means a verbal defense. It's what's used in court, a verbal dis- defense to give evidence or testimony in a case. We've got to be prepared to give a logical step-by-step explanation of what we believe. And we're all charged with the responsibility of giving a reason for our faith. And I really believe that a lot of us are intimidated to speak to others about Jesus Christ because we're not prepared to do that. I think a helpful hint would be practice telling your story. We've all got a story. Practice telling it. You might even want to write it down. You might describe your life before Jesus Christ and afterwards. And if you don't have a dynamic testimony in that area, if you were raised in the church and you don't, that shouldn't hinder you at all because you can tell them about how far away from Christ you feel when you're not walking with him. There's a story to be told for each one of us that knows Jesus Christ. Our personal experience is the one thing that nobody can refute. It's ours. We experienced it. And it's part of being ready. Find a Christian and practice your testimony on them. Make sure to explain words that might, uh, might be hard for somebody to understand. The spirit is the prosecution in people's lives. We're the witnesses. If Jesus isn't just a part of our lives, but he is our lives, people will see it. We need to be witnesses to the 
faith and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. All around us, we see, we see needs. The world's become increasingly hostile to Christianity. And the greatest and easiest defense that we can give is our own experience, our own testimony. You can argue a lot of points of theology. You can argue with a person's transformed life. But you can't argue with their personal experience. People should see us living with hope. Are we a testament? Are we a testimony of hope to other people? Or do we walk around grumpy all day and expect people to want what we have? People want answers. They really do. I believe that. They know they don't have hope and they want hope. When we demonstrate the leadership of Jesus Christ in our lives, people should be curious. People should ask questions. When they ask, we need to be ready to defend our faith. The end of verse 15 tells us how exactly we are to respond. It says, with gentleness and respect. We're not called to win arguments. We're called to make disciples. While we should be ready to defend our faith, what we believe, we've got to avoid being abrasive in the manner that we do it. We're to be gentle, which is a, a word that translates also into meekness. It's an inner attitude that affects the way we interact with others. Gentleness means strength under control. And the word respect is the word phobos or fear. And it doesn't mean we're to be afraid of people, but we're to sense the awe, the holy awe of being responsible for committing the gospel to our lives and to other people. We should look at opportunity every time it is there to share our faith with another. We should look at it as a holy moment, something to awe. And in this day and age, it's pretty easy to become cynical, and we have to avoid that. The reality is that some people will reject the truth no matter what we tell them. But we have to not allow that to keep us from sharing the truth. Most of our witnessing is likely to happen in passing moments of conversation. It's not like you're out there door-to-door -door knocking or anything like that, but the issue is not that we should necessarily become more aggressive about sharing our faith, about the hope that we have, as we should be trusting God to open up doors, but we have to be sensitive to it. God will give us clear ways for people to see the central message of the cross of Christ. Remember John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Throughout his time here on earth, Jesus made some pretty exclusive claims. And he had the right to do so because 
he is the one that offers what no one else can. In our efforts to reach the lost, let's make sure that we are ready to give them what they cannot get anywhere else, Jesus Christ. When Jesus first called Peter and Andrew, remember what their profession was? Fishermen, right? Yeah. And when he first called them to be his followers, what did he tell Jesus? That he was going to make them fishers of men. He was going to change them to become pursuers of men. We're all called to be fishers of men. But sometimes I think some of us need a fish finder. We need to go fishing where the fish are. We need to be around non-Christians. And that's kind of where we started this message this morning as far as the statistics. Boring statistics that they are. They actually point us in the direction of some of the best fishing holes there are for evangelism. Some of the statistical data that stands out in my mind having to do with parents of preteens. There's so few of them that actually know anything about Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of them in this valley here. Most of them don't have a clue about biblical worldview. They don't know why they're even on earth or what God requires of them. And I believe that those same parents are well-meaning about raising their children right. But they don't even know what that means. And these well-meaning parents are the ones responsible for raising the next generation. And if they don't know Jesus Christ, they don't have a spiritual well to draw from to give to their children. They can't give their children what they don't have. So I was trying to think. If I were out looking to catch fish, I'd probably try to concentrate my efforts where the fish are. In areas that are going to be the most rewarding, the most fruitful the most needed. And along those lines, when statistics tell us that only 12% of children's children's and youth pastors have a biblical worldview, it compounds the problem for young couples. So it would be helpful, I think, if we hung out where the parents of young children hung out. And we've got, I, I was thinking, you know, where would I go to talk to the parents of, say, preteen children? We've got some pretty great little league fields here in Los Lunas. In fact, they're lighted. I think a couple of them even have uh, artificial turf. They're really nice fields. And I know those are places where kids and parents hang out. And I think it's free to go to the games. I'm not sure. Does anybody know whether it's free or not? I think it is. But if you think about it, you know, sitting in those stands watching a baseball or football or soccer game isn't a bad way to spend some time. It's kind of enjoyable. And I know it's easy to strike up conversation with the proud parents of that kid that just hit a double or that just kicked a field goal. You can find those parents everywhere. And it's pretty easy to strike up a conversation with them. And in conversation, it's pretty easy 
to get a feel for where they're at and to be able to talk to them about meaningful things. Parents love to talk about their kids. See where they go to church. See where they worship at. Oh, we don't. Really? Wow, you're spending so much time here doing this. That's pretty important too, isn't it? I mean, there's ways to strike up conversations with, with parents. I don't think that, that we need to be secluded or uh, sequestered as Christians. We need to get out there where the fish are. And there are a lot of ways to do that. You know, befriending some, some, some young parents, uh, you know, asking them out to, to dinner, buy them a hot dog at the game. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff to do. And the only thing that's going to hinder you is a lack of imagination. Because I'm sure you guys can come up with a lot better ideas than, than I do. John 4.35, Jesus says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. We could not live in a time or in a place where that statement is more true. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that we just concentrate our efforts on young parents, parents of young preteen kids because that would be unbiblical and kind of stupid. But I'm just pointing out that we have a built-in field that is ripe for harvest right here in the valley. And if you want to catch fish, you go where the fish are. The conclusion when all is said and done is that each and every one of us are called to evangelism. Each and every one of us have responsibility in that area. This year, as a local church body, we're going to concentrate our efforts in that area, bringing others to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. It should be who we are as individuals, who we are as a body.